This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. One, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Okay, he likes the word no one. There is no person, no one who is right before God. There is no one who is good before God. In God's holy justice, when he looks at us, we are all failures, we're all sinners. There is no one who is right before God. So there's no such thing as the good person, no such thing as the moral person, no such thing as the ethical person. We are all together condemned by God under sin. We all face God's wrath. right? But the good news is, which came last week when Andrew Wong was preaching, uh, the next slide. Oh, okay. Okay, you all got the picture already, right? Alright, so it's a dead end. Okay, it's a dead end. There's no way we can actually work hard for our salvation. But the good news is, in Romans chapter 4 verse 22, it says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So what God does, next slide, is that he takes the wrath which is due to all of us and he puts it on Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus Christ died, I think last week Andrew used this big word, as a propitiation, right? He pays so that God's anger will actually be uh, satisfied and fulfilled. He'll pay for God's wrath. So this week's discussion actually continues on from what we learned last week. And it fundamentally comes down to two questions, right? So the next slide, the two questions, one is in black and one is in blue, right? So the first question is, what about boasting? What about if I'm a good moral person, if I'm an upright person, can I boast about the good things that I've done? The second question, which is in blue, is what about being Jewish? What is the advantage of being Jewish? What about circumcision? What about the law? So these are the two questions which Paul now struggles with and grapples with as we come to chapter 4. What about boasting about my good works? And what about my Jewishness, about my circumcision, about the law? Is there any advantage in that? Okay, so once you understand the framework of the questions, then you understand what chapter 4 is on about, right? What is he talking about in chapter 4? So come with me now to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he addresses the first question, right? What about boasting? So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we, shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter, right? And the matter is about boasting. So, uh, who is the most respected person in Singapore? You probably, for many people, it's Lee Kuan Yew, right? I mean, Lee Kuan Yew is probably universally in Singapore one of the most respected people because, you know, he's the one that brought independence. He's like the leader. He was the one that set the framework for the world in Singapore that we live in. But the way that we see Lee Kuan Yew is not even close to the way that the Jews see Abraham because Abraham was like the father of the nation, but not just a father of the nation in terms of being like, the prime minister or 
someone who liberates the country. But literally, genealogy, Abraham was like their forefather. So, he was the one who literally was like the, the blood of all of those who are now Israel. Right? So, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's Israel, and from Jacob, all the tribes of Israel came. So it's a bit like we are all Singaporeans, and we are all named Lee, right? Because we are actually physically part of the Lee family. And that's the way that the Jews saw Abraham. Abraham is literally the father of the nation. Not in a metaphorical sense, he's literally their bloodline, right? So Paul is saying, what did Abraham, your father, your, your like forefather, find out about this matter of boasting? Right? What did he... What was his experience? What advice or wisdom can he give us? And in verse 2, it then goes on. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, so those last four words are very important, right? Because he's saying, yes, you know, Abraham, he could boast about some good things, but not before God. So in many ways, we can boast about good things, right? So I remember going to the YMCA building in the Orchard Road. If you go there, there's this big banner of all the people who have given money to build the building. Last time, remember, we used to watch NKF variety show, you know? You see people's names under, underneath how much money they give. So you can sort of boast about your good works, but not before God. Because God, as we've already seen, sees deep inside of us, right? And he sees how we are, our good works are tainted by our own sinfulness. So maybe I gave money to NKF, but actually I'm not a very generous person. I just gave because I want people to think I'm generous. Or maybe God can see about the times where I wasn't generous to other people. You know, when nobody was looking, I wasn't very generous to other people. But most importantly, we Abraham couldn't boast before God because in a salvation sense, the good works that Abraham did were useless. They couldn't achieve salvation for Abraham. There was no justification in terms of the works of Abraham. So in verse 3 and 4, it says, look, Abraham didn't boast about his good works before God. But in verse 3, it says, what the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham didn't rely on his good works for salvation. He relied on his faith in believing in God. Now this quote here in verse 4 of, sorry, verse 3 of uh, Romans chapter 4 actually comes from Genesis chapter 15, right? So God had promised Abram many things that he would inherit many things. And God gave a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed. And because Abraham believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. So in Genesis chapter 15, it says, But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will become my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
He took him outside and said to him, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed God, the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Now, this word here, credited, is a very important word, right? It's actually a business word. It's like an accounting word. It's like you are credited money into your bank account. You're credited uh, revenue, right? And the picture goes like this. It's like, left to himself, Abraham's bank balance of righteousness is like zero. Based on Abraham's works, it always remains zero. Because Abraham was a sinner. When you look at Abraham's life, two times he lied that his wife was actually his sister because he was worried that people were going to kill him. So he lied to Pharaoh that his wife Sarai was his sister and he lied to King Abimelech again that his wife Sarah was his sister. He became impatient with God and he slept with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, in order to have children. So here was uh, Abraham. He was a liar. He was a adulterer. His bank account of righteousness is zero. But God credits his own righteousness into Abraham's bank account of righteousness so that through faith, Abraham's uh, righteousness bank statement is full of righteousness. Not because of his works, but because of his faith in God's promises. Now you notice here that there is a principle at stake, right? In verse 4, Paul goes on to say, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Now I think for many of you who are working, right? At the end of the month, your company will usually credit your wage into your bank account, right? So, you know, you give your bank account, OUB, sorry, UOB, uh, DBS, OCBC, and then, oh, at the end of every month, you see your wage go in there. That's because the company is obligated. There is a legal obligation to pay you. But that's not the way that salvation works, right? That righteousness works. God is not obligated to credit righteousness to you because you don't deserve righteousness. Just as Abraham didn't deserve righteousness, so you don't deserve righteousness. God gives you righteousness as a gift through grace. So therefore, last week, again, when Andrew Wong was preaching, right? It says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, grace is the means by which you receive righteousness, not by works. Because the two are mutually exclusive. If I give you something by grace, then you cannot then work for it, right? Because I gave it to you as a gift. It's either a gift or something that you deserve. So the question is, what did you do, what work did you do to deserve Jesus Christ dying for you? What, you know, are you, did you do such a great job that you deserve God sending His Son to die for you? What did you do that 
that morally, ethically is so fantastic that Jesus Christ dies for you on the cross? Nothing, right? Because it is by grace that God in His generosity sends Jesus to die for you. So if that is the means by which God gives us righteousness by His grace, by as a gift, then you cannot then say, I work for it, because then it makes a mockery of, what, of God's grace. God gave it to you as a gift, but yet you are saying it is by works. So the passage then goes on in verse 5 to 6 and says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So here we see that it is not the holy person, the moral person, or the good person. Notice what it says here in verse 5. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies thee, ungodly, right? So, I don't know what your ESV says, or whatever, but the older version of the NIV used to say, justifies the wicked. God justifies the wicked person, not the godly person. And we are the wicked, we are not the godly, we are those who are sinners before God. God justifies the wicked and the ungodly. Now, Paul was looking at Abraham, right? He said, okay, Abraham, what can we learn from Abraham? He was a sinner, he was a wicked person, he was an adulterer, he was a liar, but God credits righteousness to him because he had faith. So he says, let's look at the other person. So I guess in Singapore, we say, okay, Lee Kuan Yew, we respect him. Well, who's the second person you respect? I don't know. Go King Sui? So no, is it Go Chok Tong? Lee Sien Long? Who knows, right? But so, instead of looking at Abraham, let's go and look at someone else the Jews really respected. King David. King David also was a great sinner, right? King David slept with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah. But here in the book of Psalms, which is quoted, he says, Blessed is the one who's forgiven, whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Because righteousness comes by forgiveness, not by works. So let me give you an illustration. Let's say you murdered someone, hypothetically. You went to court. Court of law has found you guilty. You're now serving time in Changi prison. And um, the question is, how good do you have to be to actually be declared innocent of murdering someone? How hard do you have to work in Changi prison in order to be declared innocent of murder? You've already committed the crime, right? So you can spend the rest of your time in maximum security being really polite to the prison guards. You can mop the floor as much as you want. You can be as a model citizen, sorry, model prisoner in Changi prison, but you are still guilty of murder. 
You can work as hard as you want at being a good person, but you will still always be guilty because you murdered someone. The only way that you can actually be set free from Changi prison is if you are pardoned, right? If someone forgives you or the government or, or whoever forgives you of your sin. So in the same way, the whole passage here is trying to show us that once you're guilty of sin, it doesn't matter how hard you work at being a good person, you are still a sinner. Unless God himself sends Jesus to pay for your sin, and so you are now righteous before God. So I remember someone telling this joke before. I can't even remember whether it was, I heard it in a sermon or whether I read it in a book, right? But anyway, there was a, there was a pastor and he was asked to uh, officiate, not officiate, or do the funeral for a mafia don. Okay, you all know a mafia don, right? He's like the head of the mafia. And this mafia don was a terrible man, right? He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a cruel, wicked man. Anyway, so uh, this uh, pastor or priest, he's supposed to do the, the funeral. And so the brothers of the Mafia Don come to see the, the pastor, the priest, and says, Look, we know you're going to do the eulogy, and we know that you know our brother was a wicked man, he was a murderer, he was an adulterer. But tomorrow, when you do the, the funeral and do the eulogy, we want you to tell everybody that he was a good man. We want you to say those words. He was a good man. So then he says, uh, okay, but, but, but we know he's not a good man. He says, no, no, you must say he's a good man. If not, we will come and kill you. We'll come and kill your children. We'll come and kill your family. Okay, you must say he's a good man. So the night before, the, uh, the, the pastor is writing his eulogy. He's thinking, okay, so the, the next day, he does the eulogy. And he says, oh, you know this mafia don, he was a wicked man. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. But compared to his brothers, he was a good man. Right? <laughs> now, that's the way that we, we see goodness in this world. Right? I think I'm a good person. I think I'm a good moral person. But it's only relative to other people. But in God's eyes, there are no good people. Because in an absolute sense, we are sinners. We have broken God's holy laws. We have fallen way, way short of God's standard. So as you look in this passage here, what Paul is saying, look, there's no boasting. In God's eyes, there are no good people. There are no good works. It is by grace that you have been saved. That's the only way that you have righteousness. The only way that you're credited righteousness. Now the second half of the passage deals with the second part of the question. The second part of the question is, what is the advantage of being a Jew? What is the advantage of circumcision? What's the advantage of the law? So in verse 9, it says this, it says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So here basically, Paul is saying, look, let's look carefully at the facts. When did Abraham receive his righteousness? And when 
was he circumcised? If you look in the Bible, it actually says that Abraham was at least 86 years old. Okay, you can look it up in your own time. Genesis chapter 16, verse 15. When he received God's promises and he believed God. But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. So that's how many years? 99 minus 86. Hello? Huh? About 14 years old, right? About 14 years, okay? So actually, we shouldn't complain when people take a long time to get baptized. But anyway, so it was 14 years before Abraham received his promise, at least 14 years before Abraham received his promises to when he got circumcised. So what Paul is saying is, those 14 years show something very important, right? Because it shows that Abraham received his righteousness 14 years, at least 14 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, faith, righteousness, comes before circumcision. So therefore, circumcision in and of itself is not important because Abraham had already received his righteousness before the circumcision. And that's why in verse 11, Paul then goes on to argue, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So what circumcision really is, is a sign. It's like a seal, a symbol. So it's like I wear a marriage ring, right? Now what is more important? The the symbol, the ring itself, or the marriage? Obviously, the marriage, right? Because you know, I, I, I mean, thankfully I haven't lost my ring. But I know that some of... Some church people have lost their marriage ring. But the marriage is still a marriage, right? Because the ring is just a symbol. You can always, you know, not tell your wife and go off and buy another one. But the marriage is still the same, right? Now, the reality is that he's saying, look, circumcision is the same thing. The circumcision is just a sign. But what is more important is the righteousness. Now, as an aside, I remember one of my relatives who stopped going to church for more than a decade, he used to tell me, oh look, see, I still get mail, the church magazine, from my church regularly, because I'm still in the membership role. Therefore, I'm okay with God. Now the question is, is your membership in the role more important than the reality of your faith? It's the reality of your faith, right? I mean, your name on the membership role is just in a sense, a symbol, a sign of what is presupposed, which is your faith and your membership in the, the large, real body of Christ. I remember I went to preach at a church camp, and uh, on the second day, uh, they weren't very happy with me, uh, but luckily, they managed to give, keep me in the room anyway. Because when I was preaching, um, somebody in the church, some of the leaders said that, oh, you know, actually, once you are baptized, you are always a Christian. Uh, I think this is during the question and answer time. I said, no, I disagree. I said, if you're baptized, it doesn't mean you're Christian, right? Because in a sense, the baptism is like a symbol. It's only the sign. If someone's baptized, but they stop coming to church and they're living in sin and adultery and you know they're living in, in willful rebellion against God, 
what is more important, the baptism or the reality of their life? It is the reality of their life. The baptism is irrelevant. It's just a sign. So here in this passage, Paul actually says, look, this, the circumcision is just a sign of the reality of faith in Abraham's life. The reality of righteousness in Abraham's life. So he goes on to say in verse 11b, So then, he, Abraham, is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Then he is then, and he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what this passage is saying here is that Abraham is actually um, the father, not of the circumcised, but the father of all people who receive righteousness through faith. So the circumcision is not important. What is important is Abraham is the father of all those who walk in the footsteps of faith. All those who have the same faith as Abraham. All those who follow this faith of Abraham will be credited righteousness. They are of the same family. See, the problem with the Jews, uh, the next slide, the Matthew passage, right, was that they thought that as long as Abraham was their father, and obviously Abraham was always going to be their father because they were all born of the tribe of Abraham, right? Then they would be right with God. But Paul says, no. The true children of Abraham are not those who have the DNA of Abraham. Right? I mean, obviously, they all, if they all had, uh, we could find Abraham's hair or something, could say, yeah, 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 they're all in the same DNA. In God's eyes, those who truly belong to the family of Abraham are not the ones with his DNA in their blood, but who walk in the faith of Abraham. They are the ones who truly are Abraham's family. So Paul goes on and says in verse 13, It is not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith would mean nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So remember, there were two parts of being a Jew, right? Circumcision and the law. So what God is saying through Paul is that if you are saved by the law, then the promise is useless. God is a liar. Okay, so let me give you this illustration. So let's say, uh, okay, I have some money here. I want to give Andrew Leong $10, right? He's only... I'm very generous. I want to give him $10, right? Okay, I give you $10, Andrew. I promise you I give you $10. It is my promise. They're all witnesses here, okay? Now, if I then say to Andrew, I give you $10, Andrew, on the condition that you never say a lie for the rest of your life, then my promise is worthless, right? My $10 is valueless. He will never ever get this $10 in his whole life because he can never stop lying, not to say that he's a liar all the time, but he will lie sometime in his life, right? Surely one day in his life, one moment, he will tell a lie, right? He'll say, yes, yes, dinner was great. 
But actually, it was lousy. He doesn't mean it, right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, it was a good sermon, Andrew. But actually, in his mind, he really didn't think it was that good, right? <laughs> so, in a sense, if you make a promise, and it's an unconditional promise which God gives, right? Have faith, you will be credited righteousness. But then you then depend on the law. Then the law actually invalidates the promise because you can never receive God's promises because you can't keep the law. The law actually invalidates, it makes God's promise valueless. And that's what Paul is saying here, right? Because he says there in verse 15, the law actually brings God's wrath. It doesn't bring righteousness. It doesn't make you right and justify you before God. So here, in verse 16, right, we actually see uh, that, oh, hey, too far already. Okay, we don't know. Uh, actually, I said only up to verse 15, but ah, okay, I'll give it to you verse 16 anyway. Okay, <laughs> okay it says, Therefore the promise comes from by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who have the faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all. So here in verse 16, there's a summary, right? Abraham is the father of not just the Jews and those who have the law, but the father of all people. All people who have faith. So if you have faith, that's all you need. You don't need the law. You don't need circumcision. There is no boasting. There is no works. So in conclusion, uh, there's a pastor I know called David Cook. And he said, you know, the, if you want to make your pastor cry, right? He said, if you want to make your pastor cry, he said, when you are dying in the hospital on your deathbed, right? And uh, you're lying in bed and your pastor comes to visit you. Say to your pastor, am I good enough? Right? Have I done enough good to deserve eternal life? And then your pastor will be like, oh my goodness, all the years of Bible study and sermon was useless, right? This person doesn't understand enough. Because you can never be good enough to be saved, right? Fundamentally, at the heart of it, if we walk out today and you get hit by the bus, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You shouldn't be like, get hit by the bus and think, oh my goodness, during the sermon, I was dreaming, right? I was, don't know, I was thinking some bad thoughts or whatever. Can I be saved? Because it's not about how good you are, it's about how good God was in His grace in saving you through Jesus Christ. So the heart of it, today's passage, right, is a reminder to us that our salvation is not based on how good we are, but on how gracious God is. Because God, by His grace, gives us Jesus Christ. And it's only when we have faith in Jesus that we are credited righteousness. That's the only way that you'll ever be right with God. Okay, so let me close in prayer before we have our Q&A. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace and a God who keeps His promises. We pray that all of us here will be uh, the family of Abraham, that He will be the father of us all that we will walk in his footsteps and have the same faith that he had in you. And as a result, we will inherit eternal life and that we will be credited righteousness just as Abraham was. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.